Luck on Sunday. Brought to you by Whirlpool. Bet with the world. Welcome to the Luck on Sunday podcast, a weekly audio digest of all the best bits of Luck on Sunday, free to air every Sunday from nine o'clock that brings you the best guests and insight from around the racing world. And my guests today to enjoy all of what we experienced yesterday at Newmarket and to look ahead to what's happening this week, plus reflect on what's been an extraordinary news week, detoury and much, much more. Uh, Huey Morrison, Louis Stewart and Lee Mottishead, senior writer from the Racing Post. Uh, Huey Morrison, I've talked you up as one of the great thinkers of the sport. You can't let me down now. I'll do my best. <laughs> <laughs> it wasn't to be for not so sleepy in Vino Victrix yesterday. Both OK this morning? I, I believe so. Um, yes, but Vino needs uh, good ground. And Sleepy carried a weight beyond, what, eight pounds more than when he was fourth a couple of year, four years ago and four pounds more than last year. So he actually probably ran to form. And a bit like you, he's earned the right now, after his glittering <laughs> career, to kind of do and say what he wants. Yeah, he's, you know, he's... Um, he says what he wants at home every day, and um, I thought he behaved quite well yesterday. <laughs> Lewis Stewart always on his best behaviour. It's been three, four months now since you, you hung up your riding boots. You look incredibly well on it. How are you feeling? Yeah, I feel great, Nick. Um, it's been a big change, obviously, to my life. Being a jockey, you're very invested in the sport, and it's more of a, a lifestyle rather than a job. So um, now the weight is off my shoulders and I can eat a bacon roll, I feel great. <laughs> And good news for you overnight because a filly that you've been very closely associated with, Morge, made a sparkling comeback at Keeneland, which we're going to look at a bit later. Yeah, it gives me goosebumps now. Um, she's a special filly. Uh, her work has been impeccable at home. Um, I've been lucky enough to sit on her plenty of times before she flew to America last week. So um, it was the performance of the weekend for me to see her get ahead in front after a bit of a layoff and uh, delighted for Said. So Huey, Louie... <laughs> um, <laughs> Come on, dewy-eyed Lee Motter's head oh, in the good. aftermath of in the aftermath of City of Troy yesterday, Lee. Yeah, um, he put the seal on. Well, I can't recall a week like it, Nick, um, for an intensity of news stories. I feel like I've had three birthdays since premierisation was the main <laughs> topic of conversation at the start of the week. Well, well, with Frankie retiring and unretiring, and yeah. uh, Grand, National. Grand National, we had. I mean, th the fact that we had Ace Impact retired during the week and re in relative terms it barely got any coverage because of everything else that was going on extraordinary week uh, and yesterday of course capped it all off with a performance really for the ages from this horse by justify city of troy what a brilliant performance it was in the dewhurst we wanted it we expected it our fears were that it had rained too much to uh, produce a performance of real brilliance um huey morrison you're not someone to get wrapped up in too much hype too early in a horse's career, but can you involve yourself in this or not? I, he was he was impressive, um, a bit like when he won at Newmarket, the, the July meeting, because he he's sort of there, he's coming there, and then suddenly he just sort of draws away, and just being able to admire him in the paddock, 
before and after. Uh, you could, you, he's, a, he's a lovely horse and with a great attitude. Just look at him there, the head cantering along, looks very relaxed, um, lovely stride, and you know, visibly looks a, f uh, a sound looking horse as well. Yeah, he's a, a, a spectacular mover, Louis, isn't he? I mean, you've ridden enough quite classy horses on the gallops in the morning. When you watch him just float through the race, you wouldn't think the ground was as soft as it was. No, and he definitely looks like a, a jockey's dream. To me, watching it, his gait speed is push button. The way he traveled through the race, to make the running like that on, on testing ground was very good. And, and I like the way his, his rhythm and, and how he stayed composed in the dip and then to, to stick his neck out and really lengthen was very special. And like Huey just mentioned, he, he, he just looks so effortless and then all of a sudden he's three lengths clear. So um, a very good performance and backed up by some big words from his jockey and, and the lads. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, Hugh, you, you've had a pretty good relationship with Ryan Moore down the years. He's ridden a lot of winners for you. It, it, he's not the sort of rider that just pushes forward and goes unless he's got utmost confidence in the horse that he's on. Yeah, I, I think that much as anything, what it reflects, what, a, what he seemingly has a lovely temperament. You know, you get, if a lot of horses you go off in front there, they, <coughs> they run too free, they don't get home. Um, you know they burn themselves out, mm. but he looks like a he looks like a horse that's all go the distance. And you you know you try and develop these horses with classic pedigrees, mm. nice and circumspectly. Mm. For a horse to have the street wisdom to just get out there in front in a group one and go yeah, on I go. How hard is that? How rare is that? Well, we, we I, you know we haven't had many horses of that uh, anywhere near that caliber. But um, you know the good ones you tend to you'll be. Going back to the good sprinters we had, you'd, you'd hold them up, get them to settle, and then develop through time. But be able to do that as a mature two-year-old, um, let's hope he improves like, like he should do, wait for age, like, like the rest of the gener uh, his generation. Okay, well, what we're going to do in a minute is try and assess what the future might hold for this horse and what connections might be tempted to do with him next year. We assume he's going to start in the 2000 guineas for which he is currently an even money favourite. Let's hear from the connections, uh, Aidan O'Brien in a moment, but first of all, Ryan Moore, who gave his snap reaction in the aftermath of yesterday's victory to Lydia Hislop. He's impressed me on all his starts, and um, the first day I rode me done something which a horse never done to me before. And when he ran here on the July course, um, I thought that was an impressive two-year-old performance that I'd ever at that time of the year, I'd never rode a two-year-old that could do that. And um, coming to today, honestly, beforehand, I couldn't see how anything in the race could beat him. Um, the worry was holding ground that rain we had last night. Um, you know, and he'd been off since the July meeting, which is a long, long time. It's not what you usually do. Um, but I thought his performance was very commanding again. And um, he, he's... He's, he's a special horse and his action is, is different and for me he doesn't need, he doesn't want ground like that, you know, he, he wants a nice surface and uh, he's an exciting horse and I'd say there's a lot of options open to him now. When you said first time out he did something that a horse has never done before, uh, what was that? I couldn't stop him, it's never happened. <laughs> it just, he was just galloping on so relentlessly. Yeah, well, we, went, we went steady though, you know, and yeah. Um, yeah. And he only got racing in the last 150 yards, fast ground, and uh, yeah, um, Penny dropped late. But um, yeah, he's 
he's he's a he's a very rare horse I think yeah I, d I don't think the horse has been this exciting at the stage of their two-year-old career since the F word in 2010 would you be thinking he's along those lines the, the, for me that's the best racehorse I ever saw um, I, I stupidly said it on the drive horse to someone privately that I hadn't seen a two-year-old do that since him but that's not uh, like he's got a lot that's a silly comparison to make you know he's this horse is a long long way to go yet but um, he's He's exciting at the moment, and every, every question we've asked him, he's done, and he's going to have to carry on doing it. But um, what he's done so far, you'd only be impressed with. We've never had a horse like this. Um, he's a beautiful mover, so obviously good ground is what he, he wanted. When we walked the track for the filly yesterday, we were happy that he would be OK on this, but then nearly an inch of rain came last night, so uh, Ryan came in after the first, and he said it was deep, tacky ground, so it was completely what he wouldn't want. Um, but Ryan thought it was the right thing to run. Um, he's unusual, this horse. He, he's an unbelievable cruising pace. Um, Ryan, uh, Dean rides him every day in all his work and all his canters. Does an unbelievable job with him. Finbar, Samita, John, Seamus. Like, he's a big team around him, but uh, we've never had a horse that we've never seen the end of yet. Mm. Even in his work, he never gets tired. Um, he's always finishing. He always runs out, across the line and out over the hill. So, very unusual that you always see the bottom somewhere. Um, but we haven't seen him with this fella, so um, he's very exciting, really. He's, um, he, he doesn't look a big horse, but no. when you stand into him, he's, well, he's all there and there's plenty size. You he's know. athletic as he's well, very, and he uses he's, himself. He's so well proportioned, you know, and, and I think that's where his big, long stride comes from, and I'd say there's great power in his stride, you know, so, um, yeah, incredible horse, really. And you know that Aidan O'Brien and this ownership team are in the business of making stallions, and you know that they need to, to sell these horses and sell these horses hard. But in truth, this isn't a horse that takes an awful lot of selling. Where do you think he's going to be campaigned next year, Louis? Do you think it's going to be Guinea's Derby? People are talking about the Triple Crown. Is that really something that you'd conceive of? I mean, it's always a potential with Aidan O'Brien. You can't ever write anything off. He knows more than all of us sat here on, on what he has under the bonnet with this horse. But, I mean, the possibilities look endless. He looks a horse that... I guess could go to the highest levels very quickly. I would say the Guineas is going to be the first port of call. Whether he stays a mile and a half is yet to be known, but I'd say he'd definitely get a mile and a quarter standing on his head. Yeah, and that's the thing. I wonder, Lee, I mean, Michael Tabor was being asked about the Triple Crown because it's become a, a thing, hasn't it, since Camelot narrowly failed. Yeah. Uh, and he said, well, you'd go Guineas Derby and then, and then see beyond there. Are we really, if he does get that far, are we really going to be deprived of seeing him in some of those big international races on the basis they might want to run him in the St Ledger? Well, it's an interesting question. I mean, to be fair, Michael did expand on that whole um, Triple Crown um, mm possibility and he referenced the fact that it is John Magna's racing dream now to to land the Triple Crown. Now clearly there are with, with a nod to Najinsky and his father-in-law Vincent O'Brien. Exactly. Yeah. Um, and given the horse's stallion uh, father that would make it extra interesting as well. So I, I wouldn't be at all surprised if that really was in the back of their minds. Um, I, I think what is what is particularly exciting about this horse is the possibility that he could be the first all-time great horse that Aidan O'Brien has ever trained. It sounds a crazy thing to say, but Aidan has never had an all-time great racehorse. What's the nearest he's come to an all-time great? Well, he's had horses like Galeo, um, Rock of he's Gibraltar, had Hawk, Hawkwing, Rock of Gibraltar. Giants Causeway. Yeah, but the fact that 
if you said to someone, what is Aidan O'Brien's best horse, you might come up with three or four different answers. If you said what was Henry Cecil's best horse, you would immediately say Frankel, Sir Michael Stout's best horse, you'd say Shergar. There are very, very few horses that you would bracket as all-time greats. Aidan O'Brien has not yet trained one on the track. That is the, the pursuit that they are engaged in. At this stage, there is a possibility that City of Troy could be one. And that sort of dream, that sort of hope, is what fuels flat fans going into winter campaign. It's a very interesting point, this. And clearly, when they said, this is our Frankel, Michael Tabor said, didn't he? Or yeah, he could be, Sorry, he could be our Frankel. No, no he said he's our Frankel. Yeah. You know, in, in terms of, I suppose, at this stage of his, of his career. So, Huey, who is the best horse Aidan O'Brien's trained to this point, do you think? Um, <clears throat> I was about to, about to say Galileo, but... Um, he was beaten several times, wasn't he? John, John Randall, our ace historian, makes a point in today's edition that the, actually the only all-time great he has trained is Isterbrack. Oh, yes. <laughs> very, very good point. Very good point. Yeah. And definitely an all-time great. Absolutely. But on the flat, he hasn't actually had one. He's had lots of very good horses, but none that stands out clear among the rest. This could, potentially, be that horse. I thought what was interesting before the race, Nick, was how tense and anxious Aidan O'Brien looked. We know he, he likes a course walk before a race, but he was walking past the winning post as the runners for the first race were at the stalls. He was leaving it that late, 30, 35 minutes before the race, to actually walk the track. And then he was in the winner's enclosure after his horse finished second in the autumn stakes. And again, people wanted to be sure he was going to run the horse. He said he was, but he did say he, he could get beat. Yeah. Um, so I, I did sense there was a degree of anxiety about him going into the race and therefore seeing the way the horse performed um, must have been so exhilarating for him. I thought that the, the point that, that Huey made about the way he, he gallops was, was, was absolutely on the money. He's got an amazing stride on him and just going past the, the winning post, the, the, the press viewing area is actually quite opposite the, opposite the winning post and he was sort of flicking his toe out, not like a horse who would ever want that sort of yeah. ground. And you can see why they're saying, if you get him on quick ground, he could be a different proposition altogether. Louis, I, I wanted to, to ask you a little bit about these, these Frankel comparisons again, because it, it did strike me that here's a horse who, as Huey was saying, is already apparently a model professional. He'll settle in front and do what you want. Frankel was still an explosive adolescent, really, at this stage of his career. And part of the genius of the way he was campaigned was the fact that you know, they needed to put some manners on him to get him to where he got to. This horse doesn't need any manners putting on it. Yeah, well, they all have different demeanours, don't they? And they, they all have different attributes, and, and some excel in other areas than, than others. And Frankel was, was, like you say, very explosive and probably took more time to kind of develop into the horse he, he was. This horse looks very professional at a young stage in his career. He's done not so much on the track as in only having three runs, but looks like an older horse already. Mm. Um, but, but does that mean he's open to less progression? I wouldn't say so, no. I, I think the, the way he conducts himself and makes everything look so smooth, I think he can only get better. Horses always improve mentally from runs and physically he looks as he fills out over the winter, he should only improve. And Huey, you're someone who, you know, one of your great selling points as a trainer is that you're not frightened of doing different things with horses. You won't say, right, well, this is just a mile and a quarter, so I'll just run them over a mile and a quarter. Not so sleepy, it'd be a perfect example. Are horses a bit more versatile than we give them credit for, do you think? Oh, oh definitely. I think as <coughs> trainers, we tend to, tend to play safe, don't we? We've got, if we win a guinea, ooh, let's go to the Chamber of the Palace. 
Uh, nowadays, one, um, 30, 40 years ago, you'd have definitely gone for the derby, mm. um, as as training did those days. But um, I think we're a bit paranoid about um, creating mile and a half stallions because mm -hmm. they end up in the going the wrong way. They end up going into the national hunt area rather than going to f to be sold as the best flat flat stallion. So. Uh, you know, it's great to hear that we might have a horse which goes for the Triple Crown because, that, you know, Nijinsky is always, to me, the ultimate of my childhood because um, he won the Triple Crown and it was obviously disappointing Camelot didn't. Um, so, I'd, you know, we, I think for the, the industry, the, the sport, it would be great to have a, a real hero. To try and make that relevant again? Yes. Before it becomes completely obsolete? Yeah, and I think it's, a, the, you know, the, the Triple Crown proves uh, um, something which uh, most horses can't prove on the race course that they not only got speed and resilience, they've got that they're tough, uh, they can last the whole season at the top level. And uh, any horse can stay mile and seven, you know they can breathe. Mm. And of course, that's important in passing that through the, through the generations. Yeah, you know, there's a, uh, you know, that's definitely. The tendency nowadays is to speed, 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 mm. and we lose. We maybe lose sight of the fact where we're not really understanding what the breed is about. But I want to drill down into this a little bit from your perspective, particularly with owners. Now you have newer owners, you have old owners, you have people who want, I'd imagine, mm. instant gratification, and those who are prepared to be a little bit more patient. But is it actually true that owners prefer? precocious horses, that they want whiz-bang two-year-olds straight away? Or is that just a mythology that the industry's created in order to, to shift horses? I, th I think your final comment is true, but... Um, uh, I'm not trying to lead the witness. I genuinely want to know from your perspective what I, your owners tell you. Well, I, I, the, the, the market, people want quick gratification, basically. You know, it's difficult. I mean, does, does an owner ring you and say, Huey, find me a horse who's going to win soon? No, you might get uh, the conversation would be, uh, well, uh, well, I'd like it to run at two. Mm. And you know, uh, there's December at two and there's June at two, which mm. is quite a different thing. Um, the, you know, people want to see something sort of August, September. And if you've got, if you're going for a real stare, like a sort of Quickthorn or a, mar a Marmello, you're not going to be seeing a lot in that time, at that time of year. But if they're quite, if they're classy horses, should they not be able to show something over seven furlongs as a two-year-old in late August, for example? Y yes, yeah, but some of them are so physically backward. You know, if you'd seen Marmello, and well, no, actually, Marmello's half-brother, Von de Force, who, you know, he wasn't the best, but he was a Group 3 winner. You know, if you'd seen him in sort of May of his two-year-old mm -hmm. career, you'd have been embarrassed he, he was in training because he looked, say, like a giraffe. Uh, I was at Nottingham, Lee, uh, one late October afternoon a few years ago, when Huey Morrison debuted a, a two-year-old, and he was there to watch this horse. It was about, I don't know what price he was, oh. make his debut. And I said, what's this horse like? And you said, he's actually quite a nice horse, but he, I don't think he'll show much today. Where did Quickthorn finish that day? I think it was 13th of 15 or something. Yeah. He was right, he was out, he well out, but you knew you had something. But it was just a question of persuading the, the owners to come with you. Yeah, owner breeders are, uh, have to be more patient <laughs> because they, it's a it, it, they start off with a mare, then they send it to a stand and they get full. So there's a you uh, waiting another year or another eight six months to find out if they're any good is is easier to cope with than 
James and Pam Bly, Bly that that's, you know, that's why they do it. They, they want to have staying horses, mm. so they know they've got to wait. Um, and, you know, you know, today we're running a horse which is a stair in the making. We ran a two-year-old this week, a stair in the making. They were easy to buy last year because they weren't precociously yeah. bred. And they might be easy to buy now. They might not be so easy to buy in a few years' time if the tide turns. But will that tide ever turn? Hugh Morrison talking about James and Pad Bly as the owner of Quickthorn. Of course, they own Not So Sleepy, with whom they've won a grade one over hurdles. It wasn't his day in the Cesarowitz yesterday, but it was a day for another hero of the jump scene in the Shunter, who already has a Cheltenham Festival win to his name and a grade one placing over fences. This, according to Emmett Mullins, had been yeah, a plan that had been quietly hatched about 18 months ago. He's now 10 and he'd only had five flat runs in the interim and James Doyle was the perfect man to execute a nice, silky waiting ride, Louis Stewart. Yeah, a, a lovely ride by James, obviously no stranger to the big stage. These handicaps are very tough to win. Um, I've been lucky enough to get my head in front. Mm a few times in the past but um, the Cesarich is one that's um, very demanding, very testing, obviously you need a lot of stamina and, and on ground like this where it's very holding just to keep your pitch and, and keep your horse in a nice rhythm is, is one thing let alone to be there at the finish so um, a lovely ride by James and I thought it was a, a very gallant effort, effort by the horse. Uh, Jim Crowley came in past me yesterday <laughs> he said I think I'd rather ride at a three-mile chase still than ride, <laughs> than ride in one of these. It's just so hard, isn't it? Because you've got to try and establish a nice even rhythm. And on a lot of these horses at this track with that expanse, it must be a genuine challenge. It's quite crowding as well. When you're, I guess, you all have a game plan when you go out. But if you kind of end up where you don't want to be and your horse could, I guess, feel a bit um, claustrophobic in there, it's... Uh, it's one thing keeping them on the bridle and keeping them going forward because a lot of horses can tend to back out and, and kind of um, struggle with the early pace of the race. But um, yeah, that they are very tough and, and uh, hard to win these races. And you can just spot the white cap of JP McManus bobbing about sort of two thirds of the way back through the field here under James Doyle, trying, trying just to save a little bit of ground. Notable feature of the race again, Lee, was how the Irish horses really came to the fore. I mean, Tashkan, an honourable exception under top weight, given a lovely ride around the inside. But aside from him, it was yeah. Ireland everywhere you looked. And in some ways, not surprising, Nick, because we have um, said in recent years how the Cesarevich has tended to go towards... Uh, horses who we most associate with jumping and trainers who we most associate with jumping and if you look at jumping right now it is a sport where Ireland is very much the, the, the dominant force so it, it follows that if this is becoming a jumping race without hurdles then jumps trainers are going to do well and Irish jumps trainers <coughs> are going to do well. That was certainly the case this year Nick and the extent to which <laughs> this is becoming a race forevermore for jumpers is highlighted by the fact that Emma Mullins was talking afterwards about how until relatively close to last year's Grand National that was the the target for the shunter and he's again thinking about an entry bid for the Grand National for the shunter <laughs> so imagine that the Cesarovich Grand National double James Doyle I think is on the line now M morning James morning Nick hi hi everyone have you put yourself in for the national ride <laughs> I mean, he, he's an incredible trainer, Emmett, isn't he? I think he, 
he does things with horses that no one's ever thought about, which is, um, you know, very unorthodox, but he seems to get it right, what, whatever he decides to do. He seems to, he seems to know the right path to choose, even though it's completely um, not what everyone else is thinking. So uh, full credit to him. You're spot on. He's made the unorthodox orthodox. You rode the horse like you 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 had immense confidence in him. And that is that is that what they'd given you? Is that what Frank Berry and Emma had given you? That kind of confidence? Well, I was pretty I was pretty impressed with um, Emmett Mullins. To be fair, I mean he he I, it was actually Jamie Spencer who encouraged me to to ride the horse. We were holding out for a long time to ride Pied Piper, and it was Jamie Spencer that actually said, "Sit tight. If you can, if you can get the ride on the shunter, I think you should ride him. I think he'll have a, a huge chance." And um, I was speaking to Jamie Spencer last night. He said it was a tough race to watch because he was hoping that the shunter would hold on. But um, yeah, no, I was pretty impressed with Emmett Mullins. He was a very cool, calm character. Obviously, he's a young trainer. He's, he's obviously had lots of winners on big days. But when he picked the saddle up, he was just really cool. Um, I, I wouldn't have even known that he, he really fancied the horse the way he picked the saddle up. So um, uh, he, he just said, I hope you get to the start in one piece, which, like I said yesterday, is not really what you want to hear when you're, um, <laughs> you've got two and a quarter miles to go to start. Um, he was an in incredibly phlegmatic character. I, I agree with you. He's, he can be quite disarming that way. Uh, you will be remembered when people look back on your career for all your, your brilliant Group 1 wins and classic wins and possibly not for your success in the Cesarewitch. But I sensed when you were talking yesterday that you got a real kick out of this. Absolutely. I think um, riding for JP McManus and riding a big winner for him, um, I mean, for me growing up, all, all I wanted to be was a jump jockey growing up. Uh, Sean Curran... Um, was my mother's partner at the time and he, he basically brought me up and he, he was a jump jockey um, quite, quite some time ago. I mean, he probably won't forgive me for saying that, but all we used to do was watch um, jump racing and as we all know, the, the JP McManus silks were hugely relevant um, as they have been right the way through and, you know, horses like It's the Brack um, really kind of captured my imagination and Charlie Swan, Riding him, absolute masterclass. I mean, that that's really what kind of got me into into this sport. Of course, my mother trained, but um, the big the big days are the ones you look forward to. And and watching those types of horses and JP himself is an incredible man and supports this sport. I mean, his his support for this sport has been unwavering for for a hell of a long time. Who who made you see the light and realise that there was a there was probably a more lucrative career and a safer career on the flat? I suppose my mother did. I think the fear of her watching me ride over jumps would have been uh, too much for her to take. I think um, so. Yeah, she did say, "Look, we'll put you on a diet from the age of 14." <laughs> very sensible. I saw your mum at Keeneland last week. She was in in very good form, Jackie. Now she told me she was going to have a runner. Did it? Yeah. Did the horse run? The horse ran. I mean, I, I landed in Keeneland on Friday night and I landed to a text message from her. Bearing in mind, it was 11, 11 p.m. Friday. She said, are you around to breathe the horse in the morning? <laughs> Never changes. No, exactly. So the horse did run. Unfortunately, it didn't run how we'd hope it. Well, yeah, exactly. It didn't win anyway. So 
we're uh, back to the drawing board with the horse, but I'm sure he'll have a future ahead of him, hopefully. And your, si your sister Sophie, I, I, I saw with her, her little girl, who's a, who's a great character, and she said she was thinking of making a comeback. Really? She didn't tell me that? Oh, well, I'll, bre to me. I'll, okay. I'll bre break the news to you. Perhaps, perhaps <laughs> I shouldn't have said that, but I, she was suggesting she might go back to Turfway Park and ride this, ride this winter. She's clearly not lost the bug anyway. No, well, I suppose the thing is, like I've said to her as well, if you're galloping horses in the morning uh, and doing it quite, quite often, i.e. most mornings, her husband, um, partner Chris Davis, trains over there, so she's working very closely with Chris, and she's galloping a lot of horses in the morning, so if, if, she, if she's doing that, I suppose she may as well earn a bit, a bit extra. Yeah, and she had, a, she had a great career as well. Oh, she did, yeah. She... she um, she took a very bold step. She was one of the first guys um, to go over to America, and she initially went over as a work rider, and then she worked her way up to eventually riding a grade one winner, and she was very successful. So when um, when things didn't work out great here, she she took that leap of faith, and she did it completely by by herself, and and really, um, yeah, she really excelled over there. We're going to have a look at. Um... Morge in a bit with, with Louis uh, in uh, Keeneland last night. You were at Keeneland, as you said last week, riding Master of the Seas. Just touched off in that in that Coolmore Keeneland mile, but he, he ran a brilliant race. Yeah, it was a hard it was a hard one because obviously gutted to to not win, but often when you get beat such a short margin, you kind of go through the race and analyse it. Where could you have saved that nose? And to be honest, we we kind of had such a lovely trip round. We didn't get stopped at any stage. Um, from the furlong pole to the line, you think we're going to win nicely. And I think the winner that eventually came over the top of us, obviously he's the best horse in America on turf. And I, I, I thought it was an amazing training achievement by uh, Todd Pletcher to, to get him back and, and prime for that day. And I'm sure he's going to be live in at the Breeders' Cup, whichever race he chooses. So from Keeneland one week to the Cesarewitch the next. But it wasn't just the shunter you were winning on. You won on uh, Friday as well on, on Al-Sakib. This looked, I thought, quite a strong handicap. How did it feel? I think it was a strong handicap. I, I'd ridden the horse to um, the second horse to win on its previous start at Haydock. And actually, David Egan gave me a bit, bit of stick on the way back in, um, saying I, I might have won if you didn't win six lengths on him uh, last time at Haydock. So... They, they've both taken a fair hike um, in the ratings for their previous wins, and it was a good old tussle from sort of two furlongs out to the line. I think Elsa Kibb's pretty brave. I think he's expertly handled by Andrew Balding, who's just sort of gently brought him through the ranks. Um, and, and I think he, he held this trip up his sleeve. You know, he, he was running quite successfully at a mile, mm. but since he stepped up in trip, definitely saw the best of him. And I can't let you go without asking you, from a spectator's perspective, um, what you thought of City of Troy. Blimey, he's incredible, isn't he? He's just that, that racehorse that you just wished you could have a sit on. Um, from watching him walk around the paddock to down at the start, he's just a cool, calm, collected character. Doesn't waste any energy whatsoever. And I think... To, the fact the the guys were bold enough to just pop out and make their own running. I mean, I was probably a bit of a victim of um, thinking Frankie would go and make the running. So I, I thought I'd just follow Frankie. And, of course, Frankie drew back and City of Troy just did it all by himself. I mean, that's 
he, he can do whatever he likes. He's an incredible horse and his stride just looks amazing. You know, he really stretches and the good ones do that. You know, to sit on the bridle and ask him to go, you can actually visibly see his stride pattern lengthen. Yeah, he's an incredible horse. It's going to take something special to to uh, tackle him in the future, I would think. Busy Newsweek. On Thursday, it was announced that there would be significant changes to the Grand National. The starting time would be moved to earlier in the day. The watering system would be updated to ensure good to soft ground at worst. Also, the first fence would be relocated so that runners couldn't get so much speed up from the start to the first fence. But the most significant change, and the one that was clearly the headline, was that the safety factor would be altered from a maximum field of 40 to a maximum field of 34. The first such change since 1984, and one that has provoked significant debate. The chief executive of the Jockey Club, the parent company of Aintree Racecourse, is Nevin Truesdale, and he joins me now. Nevin, good morning. Good morning, Nick. First question, why 34 specifically? Yeah, well, um, as you know, and as we've said earlier in the week, this, these changes are based on you know, significant data-driven work, looking at, over time, over a long period of time, 10 years and more, in terms of trends around what we call thubs, um, falling, fallers on seats, drop-downs, um, and other sort, of accident, uh, other, other sort of accidents that obviously can lead to fatalities. And um, certainly looking at the research, you know, 10, 20 years worth of reports, um, more data than we've ever had on some of these items, more data on speed than we've ever had as well. Um, and balancing and obviously then taking into account um, the views of jockeys, trainers, various other people, experts, professionals right throughout the sport. Not done lightly, not done knee jerk, but thinking then about what does that mean for the field size and very much a consensus view emerging from that research, both the data and the qualitative work, that um, some sort of reduction was definitely necessary. But obviously balancing that with A, the heritage of the race, the uniqueness of the race that we're determined to protect, um, and also obviously um, the, the fact that obviously a, a smaller field probably leads to more speed. And speed, as, as I've mentioned, is one of the things we were looking at. So it's a balance. There isn't a clear data set that says if you reduce the field size by X, then Y will happen or not happen. But ultimately, you've got to make a judgment call. And all of the data points to the fact, certainly lower down the, the field size, that a smaller field leads to less um, le less fubs, as it were. And that's really where we've come, come back to. Is it, it's a, it is a compromise between too much speed, preserving the uniqueness of the race on one side, um, and reducing the producing uh, the, the the possibility of 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 um, of, of fubs on, on the on the other. Um, so, uh, just talking to your um, director of racing in the northwest, Suleika Varma, who's put this report together earlier in the week, she conceded because there are so few races with this many runners, it was actually very difficult to build up the sort of data picture that you really want. But you still went for thirty four. What I'm trying to to get at is exactly why that number has been chosen. Why not thirty? For example. Well, again, it's it's the it's it's what I said a second ago, Nick. It's, it's the judgment between thirty probably takes you to a point where a you're not preserve you're arguably not preserving the uniqueness of the race, which is very important to us, and b you're putting in a position where the, where we're potentially putting too much speed on. You know, it's, it's worth looking for the data on the speeds and saying that looking at the speed into the first fence, and obviously this is connected to some of the other other um, changes as well that you've just mentioned. Speed into the first fence. 
averages 28 and a half miles per hour in the last 10 over the last 10 runnings but the last three runnings it's been more like 34 35 so reducing by too much was probably going to exacerbate that issue so it, it's it's a it's a balance between all these different factors there's no one specific reason it said 34 is the right number there is no right or wrong answer here but ultimately it, it was our judgment that that was the right place to land given all the different competing factors what would you say to those who have said that this is just eroding gradually not only the grand national and the essence of the race but eroding the sport's confidence in jump racing per se and every time there is a catastrophic injury or fatality you feel the need to do something to the point where there's no race left. Yeah, I don't think that's the case at all. I, I would actually say the opposite. This is about evolving the race, protecting it. You look at other sports, you look at the halo in Formula One, look at the runoff areas in Formula One, look at the changes in boxing. I mean, boxing's a very different sport to when my dad took me to see Barry McGuigan all those years ago. And the, all sports evolve, all sports change. And this is, our, this is our example of that. So I don't think it's an erosion at all. It's, it's actually a confident statement that we are making the right changes at the right time for the long to protect the long-term future of this race. This race that, as we all know in the, in, in the sport, is the one that transcends the sport. It's a lot of people's first contact with the sport. And those people, that persuadable public, who, by the way, are the majority of the public who want to engage with the sport positively, do expect us um, to be running the race as safely as we can. So I don't see it as an erosion at all. I see it as an evolution that will protect the future of, of, of the race long-term and the future of jumping long-term as well. So you don't feel it is, a, as one colleague described earlier in the week, a, a whack-a-mole strategy, i.e. you find issues with um, too many fallers in the Grand National, you reduce the size of the fences, you level off all the drops, therefore the speed increases, and then you have to do something about the speed accrued. Then there are too many fallers at the first fence and you have to move the start closer to the first fence, that you're acting retroactively the whole time rather than proactively. No, I heard those comments from, from Mr Yates earlier in the week on the pod, and he is absolutely entitled to his view. And, and of course, in, in some ways he's right. We, we've got to look at the trends in the data, but I don't think we, we can be accused of making knee-jerk reactions to any of this. What we're, what we're looking at is trends, as I think Zuleika said on the same broadcast, over a long period of time, not knee-jerking every time there's an accident or a horse fatality or whatever, but saying, what are the rational and right changes to make at any given time? We actually make changes to it pretty much every year. It's probably fair to say that the, the reason we're having this debate now, quite rightly, is the, these changes this year probably a bit more eye-catching than maybe we've had in the recent past, but there's barely a year goes by even without fatalities where we're not making some sort of tweak. And I think that's the right thing to be doing. But it's definitely not knee-jerking. We're looking at data trends over a long period of time. Uh, how much do you think the take on the race, the betting take on the race, will be impacted by six fewer starters? Yeah, I mean, obviously, we spoke to all the major betting operators in advance of um, announcing the changes. And as you can imagine, we've, we've, we've consulted far and wide, not just across the betting industry, but, but beyond. Um, the general consensus view on that was actually that it probably won't affect it much at all. I mean, I think the, 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 the standard sort of office sweepstick obviously doesn't affect betting turnover, and, but other betting activity around it will, will, I think, remain broadly the same. I think the other, the, the earlier start time is something we considered in that context yeah. as well, in terms of the context of, you know, any football going on that afternoon or whatever. Um, so there may be an impact on that, but ultimately we, we've got to... Um, we've got to weigh up all the different factors in terms of what, are we doing everything we possibly can to 
preserve the uniqueness of the race, to preserve the heritage of the race, and we believe we've done that. It won't alter the spectacle very much at all, but but whilst also making sure we, we, we protect its commercial future as well. So all, all these different factors weighed up in our thinking. And just on the final point, on the, on the time of the race, when the race was moved beyond five o'clock, it put a million viewers on the, on the number back in, in 2016. I think 15, it was. I think, now, yeah, hasn't yeah. achieved that number since. But are you worried that moving it back to the middle of the afternoon will take the viewing figure down and reduce the race's accessibility to the widest possible audience? Well, again, that, that's something obviously we've been discussing with ITV, and that's why we've actually not landed on a specific time yet, because a lot, a lot will, a bit will depend on sort of other ITV scheduling, sporting events going on um, during the course of the afternoon. It obviously goes without saying we will, we will be having it on the ITV main channel. Um, and it, I think if you, if you look at the um, figures, certainly, you know, for, for a sort of 3.45, 4 o'clock start, um, I would be surprised if it affected it that much. But it will very much depend what else is going on that day. We're obviously keen to steer away from um, any potential FA Cup semifinals that weekend, as an example. And that does sometimes clash. It's not going to in 20, 2024. But I think by putting it into the slot, sort of 3.30 to 4 o'clock mm -hmm. slot, I think it does steer away from any kickoff time of you know, either a 12.30 or a 5.30 cup kickoff time, which is obviously a positive. What assurances can you give us now as we sit here in October, Nevin, that the events of this year, and particularly the events surrounding Animal Rising, won't or can't happen again? Um, I don't think we could ever be absolutely sure that that threat has gone away. Obviously, I, I, I made some comments publicly about that um, at the IHFA conference in Paris a couple of weeks back, and um, we, we are very much of the view that we need to be ready um, for that sort of threat to re-emerge. Um, but what we have done is we've learned a lot. I mean, I think the way our teams and the police handled it this year was, was exemplary, but you're always learning about how you can do that even better. Um, and I think we, we, will, we will take those learnings. We will take those learnings, obviously, across the rest of the Jock Club courses and across racing in general. Um, and we will be as prepared as we can possibly be. And as I've said to you before, Nick, there is a, there is a financial cost attached to that. Um, but it's one that we, we're, we're going to have to bear in some degree because um, we, we have to accept as a sport that we are a big platform um, for this wider agenda of you know, not owning pets and having plant-based diets that, that the, the folk at Animal Rising seem to support. So we, we've got to be ready for whatever threat emerges. Nevin, thanks so much for your time. Thanks, Nick. Nevin Truesdale, the Chief Executive of the Jockey Club. Right, Lee Motter said, good week or bad week for the Grand National? Um, I think uh, overall I'd probably say good week, but it's, a, it's, it's such a... It's such a tricky looks one. looks like you say that with quite a heavy heart. And, and it is with a heavy heart. It is with a heavy heart. I think my overall feeling at the end of all this, Nick, is that more than ever, the Grand National is relying on, on luck. Um, if you back a Grand National winner, or you back a horse in the Grand National, hope is your main commodity. And to an extent, as we look to the future of the Grand National, Again, I think hope is our main commodity and the Grand National does need luck more than ever before mm -hmm. in future years. I think what they've done, if you, t if you take out for a second the, the reduction in field size, I don't think anybody really is challenging the rest of the measures. Moving the first fence close to the start, um, the earlier off time, they all make, I think, absolute sense. The reduction in field size is interesting because I can't think of a, a major racing announcement that has so divided 
the people I would consider to be the sport's most sensible thinkers. It's a bit like an election where you're not quite sure how people yeah. are going to vote. Well, I knew how Ted Walsh was going to vote. Well, that's right. But <clears throat> Lucinda Russell, I couldn't have guessed, she was in favour, having trained two Grand National. Exactly. We, we've not got the clever folk on one side and the barn pots on the well, other. You know, you've got people who you respect, seen both sides of the... And I, I can see both sides of the argument, which okay. makes it so difficult. Clever folk or barn pots? Oh, Clever folk. How's Huey Morrison going to vote? Clever folk. We should say all clever folk are occasionally prone to barn pot tendencies. Um, Huey, what do you think of the changes to the Grand National? You've had one runner in it in the past. <coughs> uh, well, when I first went as a child to see Specify, I think whenever it was, 1970? Yeah. 71? And we walked the course. It was a. In, its, in itself, walking the course was half the excitement yeah. because the, the, chair, so the chair was wide. Beecher's Brook was a, a real drop and a real brook. And, you know, what, what I, the, the world has changed and maybe it's the way forward, but um, we ha you have to question whether the whole point of the national, uh, especially to the participants, is its challenge to human and horse. And the, the more we sanitise it, the more we get away from that. So how do you sensibly manage risk with, with regard to a race like this? Well, you, you do what the, the jockey club are doing. Um, but you can't, you can't get rid of risk in a, in a race. Uh, you know, the, the numbers is... It's, it's so you know it's a is a judgment call mm. it's rather like speed limits you know if you just have one horse you'd be, you'd be better off if you all went five miles an hour we'd all be better off so why don't we all go five miles an hour on the road you, you know how far do you go and then it comes to judgment and and i think lee's right we need a bit of luck <laughs> you know we don't need um disasters on the rate on the on the on the day of the national or, or the meeting. But the, I think the point is that you've, the jock club have got to hold their position confidently enough that you're not reliant on luck. And yeah. that's the point I was trying to make to, to Lake of Armour earlier in the weekend to Nevin there. If every time you have a catastrophic injury or a fatality, you feel compelled to do yeah. something, yeah. if that is your logic, if that's your starting point, then I think you may as well say, well, yeah. we're on the road to oblivion. I think that's right, Nick. And I think the... The danger in the long term, or the, the, the medium to long term for the Grand National, is that ultimately you're left with no wiggle room. You know, the, the, the Saleh Kavama, who I think is incredibly impressive as a clerk of the course and racing director at, at Aintree, she spoke really well this week, but she made the point, as Nevin did there, that one reason why the field wasn't reduced to 30 was that there's a feeling that the more you reduce it, the more you increase speed mm. and you change that unique nature of the Grand National. So if we're saying that 34 is pretty much as low as we would want to go as a field size, um, and if we're saying that we can't move the start any further forward to the first fence, then my fear would be if we do have a terrible year and any horse race can have a terrible year, where do we go from there? That said, that's not to say what they have done is wrong, but I think you're right, Nick, in that at some point you have to draw a line and say that we know that society has changed. We accept that the jeopardy that was once the unique selling point was the raison d'etre, was the beating soul of the Grand National. We accept that society has moved on to the point where that element of jeopardy is almost now the Grand National's 
big long-term threat to itself. We accept all that, but we have confidence in the race. And we shouldn't forget as well, Nick, just, just wrapping my little bit up here, that for all that we worry about the race, and we sometimes watch it with sweaty palms as racing participants, mm. you will get an audience of between 7 to 10 million people on ITV, entries packed to the rafters, newspapers will produce acres of coverage on the Grand National. There are many, very many more people who love the Grand National than hate the Grand National, and the job of horse racing and the jockey club is to ensure that that middle ground audience, not the animal rising audience, not, not, the, not the idiots that, 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 that can sometimes behave so poorly and so misunderstand the sport, so willfully misunderstand the sport, they're not the people that we need to connect with. It's that middle ground, the floating voters that always have to be kept on side. Here we go then, BHA Hale's first step as biggest shake-up to fixture list in a generation. Richard Wayman is the Chief Operating Officer of the British Horse Racing Authority. He has been instrumental in pulling all the strands of the industry together to produce this fixture list, which has come out quite late after a number of, of challenges, but Richard joins me on the line now. Good morning, Richard. Morning, Nick. Can we talk about this £90 million figure, first of all? Just clarify for us, that's over how long a period uh, this is going to be uh, a benefit to the sport. £90 million extra for the sport over, was it three years? That's five years. Five, five years, years. Lee was right, Lee was right. Five years. So just explain to us the modelling on which that is based. So the modelling is, uh, that I think it's probably best to split that into two uh, areas, Nick. Uh, roughly half of that, uh, half of that modelling is based on making changes to the fixture list and how we promote and present races that will basically drive increased uh, revenues and, and customers from our existing customer base. So basically by organising things better, um, spreading things out on a Saturday afternoon, Sunday evenings, making racing more competitive, we believe that we can do things better with what we've already got with our existing customers. So that's about half of the of the 90. The other half of the 90 is more around by presenting our sport in a, in a better way to new fans, to people who at the moment are sort of on the edges of the sport. And this is more around how we use those headline fixtures. We believe we've got a better chance of bringing more custom, more new customers into the sport and then retaining them as well. So it's a combination of of, of both of those approaches that gets you to the, the 90 over five years. And I should just say that that 90 is compared with if we were to do nothing, and bearing in mind, if we were to do nothing, a number of our revenues at the moment are in decline. So it's not necessarily an extra 90 from where we are where we are today. It is 90 compared with no, you know, no changes. Richard, let's just talk about that, that first 45 million then, if you yeah. like, or that first half. Just walk me through the the big data that has has led you to this what are you getting from the betting industry that is informing this and how is the new structure going to provide that increase in betting turnover the information that the betting companies have been providing they've been providing this to the levy board now for some time is basically race by race betting data so you can look at any single race that's run in britain since i think 2017 and see basically how that race race performed and uh, over the last year the levy board uh, and the betting companies agreed that as part of this exercise that we would have access to that data and that's helped us to obviously do a lot of modeling and analysis of uh, things that would help us make changes that we think would grow the amount of betting on on our sport 
having said that, of course, Nick, there are some elements within uh, the proposals here that uh, are things that we're trying for the first time. So, so, for example, racing on a Sunday evening, the betting companies have said to us, we think this is a really um, significant opportunity for British racing. Um, we, we, the betting companies, are taking more money on Sunday evenings, whether that's on overseas racing or whether that's on other sports. And at the moment, British racing is, is, is missing out on that. Now, until we actually try uh, running a pilot of these fixtures, we don't know exactly what, you know, the data can't tell us what, uh, what that will mean for British racing. So, so yes, there is there's very detailed uh, betting data behind, about, behind the changes that we've made. But obviously, in some areas, there is an element of, of, of testing and learning as we go. I just want to drill down into this Saturday afternoon premierized window. And we spoke about this a little bit earlier, earlier in the week. The idea that Huey Morrison has just touched on, ITV is not going to change their game. They're still going to be showing nine or ten races on a Saturday afternoon. That is a crowded two-and-a-half-hour show. And presumably, the horse racing industry wants lots of races on ITV, yes? Absolutely. Absolutely. But, the more we can get on ITV, the better. But, the, but that is surely counter to this notion of decluttering, telling the story better and fan engagement. Well, well, let's just go through what we've tried to do with, with the Saturday afternoons and, and indeed the, 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 the premier racing. So the first point is actually by creating this separate tier of, of premier fixtures, it helps people who at the moment don't fully under, understand our sport or indeed don't have any interest in our sport to better understand what our headline meetings are. Now, you know, uh, plenty, plenty, of, uh, plenty of people watching this morning will be very clear where the big meetings are, but to the uninitiated, we just have this mass of, of nearly 1,500 fixtures in our fixture list and there's very little way for somebody new into the sport to necessarily understand which are our headline fixtures? Yeah, that's that's that's. A, that's a, I think that everyone agrees with that. I think that's that's a good idea. So, so how is that going to get from from your table to the wider public? So, how is that going to be communicated? What those premier fixtures are? So, so let me just finish that with the second point. Then we invest and build in those fixtures, so they will be bigger and better than they, than they have been previously. And that's that's about putting more money and investment into those headline meetings. The third piece, and this is the bit I think you were obviously talking about earlier, Nick, is how we've just tried to create some space around those around those headline meetings, particularly on a Saturday afternoon. So yes, if you're if you're watching on on ITV, I, you know, I accept that that won't make much difference if. For example, Catterick or Hexham are racing are racing at the same time. But you know the people are consuming those meetings in other ways. If you're in a betting shop, if you're watching elsewhere, it's it's possible that the crowding of fixtures on a Saturday afternoon does make it more difficult to really shine a light on those headline meetings. So that's why we've moved and we moved 41 fixtures um, on two thirds of fixtures next year. Sorry, two thirds of Saturdays next year. We'll have three fixtures in that two till four o'clock window. And we will test and learn to see whether that does make a difference to, first of all, the sport's ability to tell that story. And secondly, what it means for the revenues around those, sat those Saturday afternoons. I think the final area and, and the one that we are still very much working on is how we promote and present those 170 premier fixtures. So they do look different, yeah. A, to how they've looked in previous years and B, to, to, to the rest of the fixture list. And that's a piece of work that is ongoing and obviously will we'll, we'll conclude in the coming weeks.
Now, uh, Richard, you might, you might, and you at home might be able to hear a few noises off here. I've got Huey Morrison to my right. If you thought he was he was choking on one of the pan au chocolat, you, <coughs> you're mistaken. He's he's just he's just commenting as we go along. So I'm going to give you the floor, Huey, and uh, you can you can challenge Richard. Well, firstly, he doesn't even know it doesn't even know decide how we're going to promote the premiers. Premier fixtures. If we don't, you know, presumably, if you're putting forth a plan, you need to know how you're going to promote them. Uh, and it, you know, we seem to be absolutely transfixed that by moving a meeting to the morning, it's going to produce benefits to the industry as a whole. It's going to people won't, as I said earlier, they won't go to Hexham Catterick at ten o'clock in the morning. It's going to be absolutely very difficult for us trainers and. To put the meetings uh, to get people there as well, as well as get staff and jockeys there. Um, and what you're going to lose, uh, what you're going to gain in betting turnover, you're going to lose in the, the cost to the industry. And I mean, you know, when you close a meeting or close a meeting off in a geographical area like Folkestone was, and it, or if you close off Hexham, people don't go to Hexham anymore, they lose interest. You know, and people aren't going to go at 10 o'clock in the morning to go to Hexham for three hours. And even the extra little bit of turnover we get from betting or uh, income is going to be lost in the interest uh, in putting on fixtures where there's no atmosphere. Uh, that's an interesting philosophical uh, point, isn't it, Richard? The, the extent to which the threat to race courses as a, as a really crucial part of the community is outweighed by what you might get as part of this putative 90 million over five years. We, and, and the truth is, Nick, we, we don't we don't know yet, do we? And that's what we, I think, as a sport, have to be prepared to try. The sport at the moment, we have attendances that are declining, amounts of betting on racing declining. So I think it's right that the sport tries things, but obviously in a very measured and sensible and balanced way. Now, these the, the mornings that referring to here, we've got six fixtures starting in the morning out of 1500. Uh, five, five of those are basically moving a couple of hours earlier. And, and one of them is a new fixture on the morning of the Grand National. So this is a very much a, a, an opportunity for us to establish what the impact of that will be. Now, we know from a betting perspective that once you stage more than about three meetings at the same time, by adding a fourth, fifth, sixth meeting, you don't actually add any betting turnover. It's just basically the same amount of money being spread over four races. So there'll definitely be some betting upside as a result of this. Now, what we don't know yet is what we don't know yet is what the impact of moving fixtures either earlier on a Saturday or later on a Saturday will be. And it's only by testing this that we'll that we'll find out and we'll be able to come back to to what Huey was just saying there, which is, you know, the upside from betting will be far less than the downside from from on attendances. We'll, we'll find that we'll find that out over the next over the next 12 months. And then the sport can make some some sensible decisions. You know, the 41 fixtures that we've moved, uh, the, the total attendances at those 41 fixtures are about 140,000 people. So they're averaging between three and four thousand people are meeting and i'm sure our colleagues at the race courses involved and and again let's be clear no race course other than one and that's hexham with independent race courses are having to move more than one fixture by a couple of hours i'm sure they'll be working on innovative and clever ways to try and market and promote those specific 40 odd meetings in a different way but you know the sport 
has to recognize that we have to evolve, we have to try some things and be prepared to accept that some of them may, may not work. Isn't the truth of it actually is that if you, if you are someone who doesn't know that much about racing but is an, an occasional enthusiast and quite likes watching it sometimes, you're not going to notice any difference at all, are you? Well, I hope the people that do um, watch it occasionally, I hope what they'll first thing they'll notice is that premier meetings will be bigger and better next year. You know, too but often. How, but how? So this, this is, I really, really want to get, get to the nitty gritty of this because okay. they, they might have more prize money on for them. Yeah. But how are they going to be bigger and better? If I am a race goer and I go to Newmarket yesterday as a premier fixture, how is my experience of going to Newmarket on Future Champions Day going to be superior for me next year than it was yesterday you don't even know how you're going to promote it so you know we're... well let's let's just put put the promotion to one side at the moment so a premier fixture next year there will be quality criteria in terms of the types of races that are being run and the prize money that is on offer at those meetings as a result of that and linked to changes that will be made in the program elsewhere we are expecting those those race meetings next year to generally speaking be bigger and more uh, when i say bigger more competitive the, the races the field sizes to be more competitive as as the as our better horses are aspiring to run at the premier meetings whether whether offers to them will be or the prize money on offer to them will be will be more significant than elsewhere so what we're trying to do is to encourage competition by channeling our better horses to be taking part on the days when our customers are are really watching at these premier meetings thereby making those races more interesting and and indeed more competitive and i do accept nick that on the big on the very big days the you know the royal ascots the the uh, Cheltenham festivals those very big days this isn't really going to make any difference at all but if i said to you that if we'd have applied the criteria for premier fixtures to this year's fixture list 115 fixtures would have met that criteria next year we've got 170 so that just shows to you can demonstrate that as a result of these changes race courses are responding by investing and putting more into these bigger fixtures which should make them more appealing to customers next year in terms of the the customer experience however it's beholden then on the race courses to aim up and to to match what the industry is setting out for them by providing people with with something better for their money, isn't it? Yes. Yeah, so that's one of the pieces of work that, that that I was talking about that's in train now. How 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 the premier meetings will feel different next year, whether that's as a result of being on the race course as a race goer, whether that's watching from you know, away from the race course, we want we want them to to, to be different and indeed to be better. So the you know, there's lots of the, the sort of key areas of work that are ongoing in that area at the moment. So what does that premier racing identification look like? Are there broadcast innovations that can be introduced around premier meetings that will allow them, if you're watching a race next year, there may be some innovation that haven't seen previously that would again make a difference marketing around those meetings and indeed working with the betting companies on betting innovation around premier meetings so there there are a number of work streams ongoing and obviously as we approach uh, the first premier meeting on new year's day um, details of those will follow okay but that i think is another an area and we again one we've discussed which is that you haven't got a commitment from the sports marketing arm. You haven't got a commitment from the broadcaster. And you haven't got a commitment from the betting companies that they're all going to invest sufficiently 
to make all this work the way that you envisage it in a perfectly understandable way. Yeah, and I think it would be fair to say that in all of our discussions with all of those sorts of groups that you're talking about there, the intent is is a very positive one. You know, mm. people, whilst whilst people will have different views. But, but, you know, but you know, Richard, they've then got to dip their hand in and they've got to spend the money. It's not coming out of the sports central coffers. Well, the, the sport, obviously the sport will be looking to uh, how it's going to fund some of these changes. And indeed, it could be that part of that will involve looking to to the levy board to help support in some areas, some of the some of the strategic changes that we're looking to make. Um, the, the, the levy board, however, thus far have already supported this plan to a fairly significant degree, haven't they? Particularly by, I know you hate the word, but compensating the smaller race courses for some of those fixtures that they've had to sh shift around. There's only there's only so so much you can stretch that elastic, particularly given the extent to which affordability checks are going to threaten the uh, the health of the of the horse race betting levy. Of course, of course, Nick, and we have to be responsible in it, in, in in any proposals that we that we put to the levy board. Of course, they have to be responsible. But, you know, the, the point of the, 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 the fact of the matter is the sport uh, within the, the, the resources that it's got is making changes with a view to trying to support its long-term future. And, you know, it's not perfect. There are challenges. People will have different views around different things that we're doing. But all of this is designed to try and support the long-term future of the sport we all love. And that's all we're trying to do. Finally, Richard, and perhaps you know, this should have been the first question, not the last, but cast your mind forward three, five years when you've plugged that 90 million hole or added 90 million to the sports coffers with this, um, with this model process, are there going to be enough horses to service this amount of fixtures? Well, a key part of an industry strategy going forward, not just what we're talking about today around the fixture list, will have to be a how we encourage people to own racehorses in Great Britain, whether that's, you know, whether that's a domestic owner or indeed an international owner. And, you know, it's a massive challenge for us, isn't it? But that has to be at the heart of what we're doing. Everything at the moment we're looking at is around people who either spend money on the sport as customers or indeed invest in the sport, for, for example, owners. And I do think the sport has really as part of agreeing this strategy and, and, and the introduction of an industry strategy, it's all about really trying to make a sustainable future for racing by encouraging our customers and investors to do more. The fiction list is one part of it, but that is only one small part of everything that we will need to do to protect the long-term future of our sport. Paul Nichols is on the line now. <laughs> because he's had a good start to the national hunt season proper, mainly courtesy of the exploits of Captain Teague. And to be honest, there was so much going on uh, over the weekend that you'd have been forgiven for, for missing Captain Teague in the Persian War Novices Hurdle, but you shouldn't have done because he was extremely impressive. He was last year's champion bumper third and his trainer uh, joins me on the line now. Hiya, Paul. Hi, Nick. Good morning, Chief. Good morning. And I wanted to properly start transitioning us towards the the jumps now as well and you're the perfect person to do it we spoke about this horse friday a little bit and and you were you were hopeful without being super confident in the end he won by a long long way what were you most pleased with uh, look, it's his first run over hurdles it was you know obviously a proper race running him first time um everything about him his attitude you know he stayed on strong huge improvement to come from him jumping in one thing and another 
obviously it's early days and um, we hadn't been able to take him away and we hadn't scored on grass because it's still early on in the autumn. Obviously, run pointing and we've done loads of schooling with him, but it just it, it'll tighten up and improve and it was a proper start first time. He he looks quite bottomless in terms of stamina. Do you think he'd, he'd go as far as you wanted him to? Yeah, ultimately we'll get three miles and he was brought to be a three mile chaser. Um, so I'm not no fear in that at all. He, you know, he will gallop all day, so that's what you want to see. And clearly you've got to have had him pretty fit in yeah. softish ground. They went a good pace for him to draw away like that. Um, how much have you left? Well, uh, plenty. I mean, it's early days. As I said, we hadn't taken him away for a gallop or anything. He just worked away at home. It, 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 he was as fit as all the ones we ran over the weekend, really. Um, but he's just got a class, and he can get away with it in his classes. He's bound to improve. Um, but he was fit enough to do justice. So that's what you need. Um, now, there's been a bit of debate about where Brave Man's game is going to kick yeah. off his season. Do you want to run him before the Betfair chase or not? Uh, he wouldn't run before the Betfair chase. Um, the two options are the Charlie Hall, which he won last year, and the Betfair chase. And, you know, we, we, I just, uh, our number one target really is the Betfair chase. But I, I just wouldn't run him at Weatherby on ground. It was sort of bordering being OK last year. Um, he, he'll be ready for that. But we've also got Pictori for the Charlie Hall as well, so we'll make a plan the other time. But I suspect if we can, we'll go for the Betfair. OK, so Brave Man's game for the, for the Betfair chase. And then do you think you'll do what you did last year, which was campaign him quite sparingly? Yeah, I don't think he needs to run too often. You don't need anything to prove, so you just select your races, really. So, obviously, King George is his target and the Gold Cup in the spring. Whether we give him a run between Kempton and the... The King George, uh, the Gold Cup, we'll see. But you know, ultimately, the plan is one run now and then King George. That's what we're aiming for, like we did last year. Uh, how much has Pick Dory got to move forward? Do you think to become a meaningful King George contender? <laughs> well, uh, not a lot. I don't think he's he's a good one to have his first reserve, as it were. Um, you know, if he gets three miles in the Charlie Hall, it opens up other doors. You know, not putting the King George to one side. There's plenty of other options. He's you could be quite versatile with him running two, five, two, six. You get three miles, that helps you uh, with other options. But I'm, I'm sure three miles will suit him, especially on an easy track like Weatherby. I sort of get the feeling with him, and I, I know he's a horse you've always talked very highly of since he was a young horse, that we're just beginning to scratch the surface with him. And he might be one of those that the lemon might have a bit more juice in it. Yeah, he, he keeps on improving physically, he looks as good as ever. Um, he's at the right age to, to be like that. I mean, who knows? And uh, might just see a bit of improvement in him, in him over a trip. He does it, when he does jump, and he's, he always gallops on strong in the back end of his races. So who knows? But yeah, he's quite versatile. In that he's got plenty of speed, so you can alternate. You know, races like the uh, Peterborough Chase and the Ascot Chase or that sort mm. of trip. But if you've got three miles, it opens up a few more other doors. Have you got a, a date ringed for the, the good novice chasers this season? The Stay Away Fay, Hermes Allen, when are we going to see them? Uh, Stay Away Fay is going to Exeter on the 10th of November. There's a oh. nice novice chase there. That's it. It's not set in stone. Hermes Allen could go to Newton Abbott next Saturday or wait for Cheltenham. So he's imminent to run. Um, so, yeah, they're, they're coming together nicely. That's going to be a big draw for Newton Abbott. Well, yeah, it was, it's a good race. You know, we, we won it last year. Mm. We picked Dory the year before. Bayman's game won it on his debut. If, if Hermes Allen doesn't run, we'll run complete unknown. It looks like being soft ground. He's won it actually like it very, very soft. So we always try and put a nice horse in that race. It's good of Newton to put that sort of prize money on this stage of the season. And where's Stage Star going to open up? Straight to the Paddy Power Gold Cup, he goes. Um, he loves to be fresh. 
you know, it's tough because he's going to be on a tough mark, but he loves Cheltenham, he loves to be fresh, he'll go straight down. And do you think that's an angle maybe that we've not been ex exploiting in recent seasons, the idea of actually just running a proper grade one horse in that race and try and outclass them? You know, they have good records in handicaps, top weights and those type of races. Unfortunately, you can only really go left-handed, so I haven't got too many options this side of Christmas, and since he likes Cheltenham, it's the obvious place to go, really. Um, but generally speaking, happy with the weekend's um, action? <laughs> well, the rain sort of put a damper on most things. It caught us all unawares of it, really. And I took six out yesterday that were well prepared to run, but you'd prepare them, they're good ground horses, which what it normally is. So it was a bit of a, the ground, uh, like two I ran yesterday, Son and Gino and Napa's Hill, really, both like better ground, but they ran well. I took the rest out because we'll have to find other options on good ground. So considering, yeah, two nice winners, um, Captain T, nice bumper horse won yesterday. As I said, the weather caught us out of it, really. So, um, yeah, it was a good start, really.